this morning, in the largest gathering of people live that I've been in for 15 months, <laughs> this is wonderful, I'd like to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll be looking at 2, 1 through 10. Before we pray, I'd like to read these 10 verses just to get us into the spirit of the passage. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So before we pray, just where are we? We're looking at salvation. We're looking at our beliefs, and we're talking today about salvation for sinners. And the Bible fills in the idea of salvation for us. My sins can be forgiven. I can be at peace with God, embraced by him, in his love made part of his family, and a secure eternal future yet to come. In his presence for eternity. So praise him and serve him there forever. His child in his family. Whoa, whoa, I want this. Who wouldn't? But who is it for? And how do you get this? How does one get saved? And when? Is it something I'm waiting for or does it kick in yet? Let's pray. Because I think the Ephesians passage has some good answers to this. Heavenly Father, this is your word, it is sacred, it is truth, it is your voice speaking to us. So Holy Spirit, we invite you into not just this sanctuary to be active among us, but within each one of us. Work in our hearts, work in our minds, give understanding, but give conviction, give assurance, give a sense of your love and your care and the incredible sacrifice of your son, the Lord Jesus on the cross for us. Speak to us today of yourself. Point us to you, Lord God. And we pray these things 
that you would be glorified, that you would move us forward as your disciples or challenge us with what the riches are that are available for us in Christ if we've never laid hold of him and the cross to do so in response to you and your truth. So we give this time into your hands and pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So when your next payday comes, what do you expect from your employer? Doubtless, you were hoping for a check. You worked for it. I put in 80 plus hours this last two weeks. I deserve it. I earned it. I'm sweating away in the office or the lab or the workshop or wherever it is that I'm working. You ought to pay me. Uh, and, and our culture tells us that we deserve all sorts of things. You deserve a break today. Uh, it's natural then when we think about our relationship with God and salvation that we import those same expectations into that relationship. I'm a good person. I showed up at church a lot. I didn't cheat. I didn't lie. I... I God will be happy to have me in his kingdom, right? And it doesn't work. It's not the same. As we look at this key passage on salvation, you'll see something startling and radical. It won't import to our salvation. Rather, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 makes the very clarion call that we are saved by grace through faith alone, which basically means we don't deserve to be saved, but God in Christ Jesus saved us anyway. So where are we as we read this passage? Clarity always comes from context. So let's think about where we are. There's a literary context. We are in the book of Ephesians. And if you're reading with Paul as he's writing and reading sitting alongside the Ephesians here, you've just read chapter 1 in which you had this spectacular sweeping survey of everything God has done from eternity past looking into the future to let us become part of his family, to save us all the actions he took, the action in Christ, the action of his heart, his predestined foreknowledge that looks ahead, that sees our response, that picks us out and, in spite of who we are, actually includes us. We just read this magnificent panorama. There's a temporal context, too. It's about A.D. 60. Paul has been imprisoned in Rome. He's writing from prison. And there is a geographical, historical, cultural context. We are writing to believers in Ephesus. 
So Paul's in Rome. That's in Italy. We know where that is. Ephesus was, of course, the climax of Paul's third missionary journey. He started from Antioch over in the eastern part of what's uh, Syria, Turkey. He comes across Turkey to Ephesus. And if we go a little closer, you can see Ephesus is situated there in that yellow circle right near the coast. And Ephesus is a strategically important city. It is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It is a hub for commerce, economy, philosophy, education, ideas. This is one of the places to be. It's a Champaign-Urbana cubed in its world. You want to be in Ephesus. It's an important place to be. And you can see some of the pictures there just of the city itself. I'm teaching a course in the fall on Ephesus and Ephesians and the Timothys and all that happened with Ephesus. And I'll, I'll train you if you sign up for that class to actually get your way around the city. That, that's the theater that the riot in Acts 19 occurs in. I mean, this is all very real and fresh and multidimensional when you go there. It's a marvelous sight. But he's writing to people there. So we start with the first three verses. The need for grace. Bottom line, on our own, you and I are dead. And it's not very gentle in the way it describes it. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. No life, no purpose, no God, despair and hopeless. We usually say sin separates us from God, but Ephesians starts here by saying sin killed us. There is no life. Shakespeare said, the world's a stage. Paul says, the world's a graveyard apart from Jesus. There is no power to change. Corpses do not haul themselves up out of their grave, knock the tombstone over and pop out. It doesn't happen. We're dead. Then, verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now working in those who are disobedient, we were dominated, not under our own control. Uh, we used to live in this way. It actually is the word walk. We walked. We conducted our lives in this manner before Jesus, before we met Christ. So he builds the case of how incapable you and I are of contributing to salvation. Who needs this? You do, I do. The followers we were of the world's ways. But he puts this in a way that's a little more sinister. There's this ruler of the kingdom of the air, in other words, unseen and all around us, an evil personal force described as a spirit being who is at work within those who are set against God. Uh, this is someone who wants to keep you from God and disrupt your relationship. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Disobedient. There's what that evil spirit being produces in us. Where we conducted our lives selfish and contrary to God. Gratifying my fallen, self-centered nature in desires and thoughts. I thought I was free, but I was enslaved. 
verse 3, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were doomed. On my own, I'm out of hope. And my fate is sealed by nature. And what it actually says in the original is we were children of wrath. We deserved wrath because of our out-and-out sustained rebellion against God. That's not much of a prospect. But there's more to this. Where is his audience as they read this? They are in Ephesus. And I just want to think for a moment about what we know. The Ephesus has given us a rich treasury of written material, inscriptions, and literature about life there. And there's, we find, tremendous thought that the unbelieving world of Ephesus gave to evil spirits, to demonic creatures. They were concerned that these spirits would influence them hurt them, and there was tremendous effort dedicated to buying them off. There are literally hundreds of scrolls of magic charms and spells to try to deal with this spirit world. And it's the city that's known as the center of Artemis worship. And part of Artemis of the Ephesians' ID is that she's a goddess of magic and a goddess of the underworld. When Paul comes to Ephesus, Acts 19, what happens as a great cleansing and repentance in the early church at Ephesus? The early believers do what? They gather up all the magic scrolls and burn them in mass quantity. Because even though they were believers, they'd still held on to the scrolls with all the different charms and curses and spells and they realized this wasn't going to work. There was a dramatic experience where clearly Christ is more powerful than any of these. And the believers saw it. And they brought the scrolls and they burned them together. They need shelter from those spirits. And you find it in Christ. Ephesians 6, how does he end the epistle in chapter 6 of Ephesians? The directions for the armor for spiritual warfare. This is right at the surface, right at the top for these believers. And by the way, it's true for us too, because there are those spirits who desire to disrupt your or my relationship with God. And we need Christ's protection. But this passage assures you of something that you'll see in just a moment. He is more powerful than any of those. He defeated them completely. There is an ancient Greek story about a man named Damocles who was visiting the tyrant of Syracuse, Dionysius the Elder. And he had praised his power, saying, what a great ruler you are, how impressive all your commands. And Dionysius said, it's not what you think. And to show the precariousness of his power, he had Damocles served his dinner with a sword suspended hanging above his neck by a thin thread. That's what it's really like, Damocles. Second, now there's a change. Four through seven, the demonstration of grace. God's actions 
give us life with Jesus Christ. It is God's decision, God's prerogative, grace that brings us into his family, salvation. And we receive this free of charge as we bask in his massive and abundant love. My only hope is right here in God's grace, but it turns out to be a solid hope that is a fountain overflowing to immerse myself in, to soak in, to rest in, to take in all that he's done for us. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, but God, <laughs> he breaks in all of a sudden. It's a dramatic 180 turn, changes the flow with a huge transition. In the richness of his mercy, by the way, in the Greek, actually, it's the richness of the mercy that is first. Some of the translations reverse those. But he pictures God's mercy, and it's like a treasure room packed with God's mercy. He has an abundant supply. Well, what's mercy? Mercy means that God does not give me or you what we deserve. I deserve separation and hell. He gives me something entirely different that's totally wonderful and extraordinary in Christ. That's mercy. He gives me something far better, something good. He sees me, he feels for me, and he responds to me. He reaches out to me. It is an idea of wholeness and healing. It is very relational with God. He brings us into his presence. He brings us into his family. He connects us with him because we're getting ready for an eternity with him in his presence. And the great love that he has for us. The limitless supply of his love. He looks at you and me and he values us. He sees us as precious. He wants to show us his affection and care. We are the objects of his large pile of loving affection. Here's the basis for what he's going to do in the next verses that saves us. Why does he save us? It is driven by nothing other than God's love and mercy, his commitment and his desire to give us something incredible that we don't deserve. Uh, think back to the Gospels. You remember the story of the woman taken in adultery. There she is in the temple court, wherever we are in Jerusalem, surrounded by a crowd of people with stones, feeling very self-righteous, ready to hurl them at her and end her life and vindicate their own feelings of adequacy and righteousness. And Jesus sends them away. He intervenes. Why? Did she deserve it? No! <laughs> His love outweighed. The fact that she didn't deserve it. His love outweighs the fact that he knows that I and you sin. It is undes undeserved. I cannot earn this. That's what grace means. If mercy is God giving me what I don't deserve, uh, grace is his it's a parallel idea. He gives me what I cannot 
earn. He works with me. Five and six, the actions of God's grace. What did God do? He puts us alongside Jesus, and it describes three actions of God in these two verses that are his expression of grace, and they stand out in Paul's writing because each of them is a verb that has a prefix. It's a preposition. It's the word with. There are three with prefixed verbs, and they're very startling as you read. They really jump out at you because he's making a point. With made alive, with raised, and with seated. And you can see them in yellow up there in the text. They are parallels to what we read about Jesus in the Bible. Remember the Apostles' Creed? We'll read this in the Bible, but I'll summarize it with the Apostles' Creed. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God the Father. Three actions, these three verbs. He made us alive with Christ. So there are three verbs prefixed by with that include us at Jesus' side. Now, this is an extraordinary passage. We participate with Jesus in the great actions that won our salvation as he passes on that triumphant road to the throne. And they're in the past, folks. You might think these are for tomorrow. Paul states them as true of us today, right now. First, with made alive. He made us alive with Christ. So there's a string of three verbs that it focuses on. He brought us through a resurrection. He pictures you and me as united with Jesus, standing beside the Je Jesus inside the tomb and walking out with him. He raised us with Christ. Jesus was physically dead, and he received physical life. The Father gives new life in Christ. Now, you and I were spiritually dead before Jesus, but that spiritual life of salvation brings us into connection with God. And yes, there'll be someday a new physical body and a new physical life in heaven in his presence eternally. But the contrast is laid out here. Made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. He picks up that phrase from verse 1 from the very beginning of the chapter, and says, look at what he has done. We are alive because we were dead once. Helplessly trapped in sin, cut off, now I am alive. His family, his children, his flock. And then he includes a very stark statement. It actually breaks the grammar, and so it hits you hard as you come to it. It is by grace you have been saved. Saved is a past. You are already saved if you know Christ as your Savior. It is a present reality in your life by grace, which simply means you don't have to make it complex. It simply means we don't deserve this. We are not good enough to earn it. So he with made us alive. 
He with raised us, raised us up with Christ. He continues the parallel. And God raised us up with Christ, verse 6. And I think what he's describing is the ascension of Jesus. There's three movements here. And when you read Acts, you will notice in the preaching, the evangelism of Acts, the outstanding importance of the ascension of Jesus to heaven. It's something we rarely think of sharing when we talk about the gospel. But in Acts, the apostles and the early church just keeps talking. He was raised from the dead, and then he ascended to heaven, and now he's on a throne there. That's all part of the gospel. We shouldn't truncate it. So he raised us up. I think we're going up to heaven with him in this picture. You are spiritually on an ascension journey with Jesus. And what do you notice? God raised us up with Christ because nothing can touch us or keep us from that ascension. Again, the Ephesian. Think about how they're reading it. All these hostile cosmic powers, they're worried about hurting them, affecting their life, interfering with their life. And we're on our way to heaven with Jesus. We got out of that. God's power is greater than that of any of those hostile cosmic beings the Ephesians worried about. Christ Jesus reigns supreme. He made us alive with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with Christ in the heavenlies. Jesus is now very much alive and enthroned in heaven. He reigns as king of the universe. That's the meaning of sovereign. Seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, you and I should truly be amazed. Look at what he's done. He's not only describing the risen Christ on the throne. You and I, present tense, were already there, reigning with him and enthroned. Not only as a believer do I agree to these things, Jesus did this, but what Paul is saying is that you and I, in a real sense, have been put firsthand into his victory march from the tomb to heaven and the throne. We're included in this. Where does that mean you're sitting right now? Well, yeah, we're in TCVC, but no, you're on a throne. That's what he says. Where? In the heavenlies. In the unseen world of spiritual reality. In his kingdom, which is breaking in and will finally rule with, uh, with completeness in the end. I am on earth, but in a way that exceeds what I usually can wrap my mind around. I am serving him in that unseen spiritual dimension right now. And there is a power and authority because he has a power and authority. And it's a power and authority that is designed to remind us that there is no power that can derail us or dissuade us if we cling to Jesus Christ and stick firmly with him. Yes, it is an assurance of glory and resurrection in the last day, certainly. But following Jesus means my work and impact in this world is a work that is both in the seen world, tangibly, and in the unseen world, remarkably. 
And it's something that you and I, because it's the unseen world, aren't going to be able to trace. I figure we won't find out the impact that faith and clinging to Christ had in the spirit world until we are in glory and can actually hear what God did. <laughs> so there's, there's much ahead. We realize we participate in his majesty right now. Uh, all of his children crowding into and around his throne, we too having thrones, participating in his mission, caring, protecting, providing, ensuring justice, righteousness, and mercy on this earth. I don't simply have a reserved seat. I have a reserved throne, and I'm already on it in heaven, secured. What's that mean? Salvation as a present reality puts you and me far closer to heaven than we would ever imagine. Verse 7, the purpose of God's grace. In order that, oh, this is why he's doing this. This is why he's taking completely unworthy people and saving them. Why? Why would God do that? In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Where is God heading with this extravagant show, this celebration? What's the purpose? What's the goal? You ready for this? God wants to show off. That's what it says. God is a show off. He wants to feature. He wants to spotlight. He wants to showcase. Oh, so there's a future aspect to salvation. There is more coming. This verse describes God. It's as if he has a big display case of trophies. They're trophies of grace, trophies of salvation, of reaching people, loving them, embracing them, caring for them, bringing them to himself, using them in the best of ways. And he's opening up the display case for people to see. He's saying, look, and you and I are the trophies. We're there in the display case. That's us. So you go to the Chicago Art Institute or other great museums of our world or the Cranert here or Met in New York, wherever it is, and you see a painting and you admire the colors and the style and the subject and it brings the artist to mind. God's showing his artwork off. It's his display case and it brings him to mind. So to see you and me and understand the testimony of what God has done to save us by grace through faith, even though we don't deserve it, points people to him. It should give people pause to reflect on our God. Think of the one who did this. So what's God showing off? We'll look at the text. He might show the incomparable riches of his grace. He's showing off grace in the coming ages. That's when we'll see it. It's incomparable. It surpasses and beats everything else. The richness of his grace. He is wealthy with grace. Remember verse 4, God is rich in mercy. Now we find he's got a lot of wealth in grace too. Again, just pictures of treasury storehouses full of God's grace and mercy. Expressed in his kindness or goodness. To us, you and I. Oh, and you know what it says, actually, when it says uh, 
he's showing in these coming ages the incomparable riches of his grace. It says that we are the objects of his grace. Uh, just as it says in the first segment that we're the objects of wrath. He changed our identity. Not an object of wrath. Now I'm an object of his grace. Why? In Christ Jesus. That's the only way this comes about. Because of what Jesus did at the cross where he stood in my place and took the wrath of God that deservedly should go against me for my sins. And Jesus took it on himself and died. So in the basement, in your den, maybe it's at a friend's house. You ever been there and had somebody who has a display case with trophies? I won all these bowling tournaments. I coached the Little League team and we won the World Series again and again. Whatever it is. My college days as a great athlete or whatever. That, that's not me, by the way. Uh, I don't have any of those trophies. I was always too uncoordinated. But God has his own trophy case. And you know, when you see somebody's trophy case and they're saying, you know, I was really great. Depends on how they say it. It could be a little obnoxious. And you're going, yeah, okay, that's fine. And I can find out about the person and their accomplishments and their interests through that. That's good. But we're God's trophies. And it's okay because it's perfectly motivated by love and mercy. It's a gift of God that saves us and gives us life. You can see his hand and work in our lives. That should cause people to reflect back on him. If you see a person who's saved, it should point you to the Savior. Third, the appropriation of grace. Eight and nine. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Here we have the appropriation of grace. As God's gift of life, we have salvation. It's not by what we do. As a human, it's natural that I want to repay a kind gesture. That was a great meal. Least we can do is help you with the dishes. That's natural. We want to do something to repay it, help them, pay up the account, but not here. God has saved me, and there's nothing I do that helps him along. It is all accomplished by the cross. So we start with Grace Remix Plus, verse 8 at the start. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. You heard that before. That's verse 5, only he adds a phrase. What does he add? Through faith. He describes the whole theme of this passage. I've been saved by grace alone. I can't earn it, but God gives it as a free gift anyway. And it is merited by nothing. I can't merit salvation, so how can I receive it? It's through faith, trusting Jesus. What does that mean? Basically, I envision that as jumping off a cliff and he catches me. I give up on myself. I give up on trying. I can't do it. And I take the jump, the leap. And he's there and he will protect. I can't do it myself. He's got to catch me and secure me. 
Well, who takes the initiative on this? Look at verse 8 again. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's two negatives. It's not from myself. I don't generate this. It's God's initiative. God knows what to do, and he reaches out to you and me and actually wants to draw us into relationship with him. And then there's a second negative. Not by works, so no one can boast. It's not by being a good person. It's not by virtue. It's not by being righteous, kind, and just. Not that those are bad things, but that's not what saves you. You can never build a case for your salvation on what you do. You can never, nobody's showing up at the judgment day in the end with a trophy case full of things they've done and saying to God, look here, are you impressed? To which God would, you know, then go, oh, of course, yeah, I'm glad you're on my team and let you in. No, 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 no. That's not happening. The only trophy case is God's and we're on display in that can't say look at me look at what i did i have no spiritual trophy case i remain a trophy in god's display the implication all the credit goes to him none of us can take any credit for any part of our salvation there is no one upsmanship in heaven on the streets of gold nobody will come up to you and say hey loser my works were really spectacular you want to come to my mansion and see my display case? no no that's not happening not at all you bring a gift to a friend. Why do you do it? Well, it's not because they did something for you. I bring gifts to my grandchildren. Why? I love them. They don't earn it. But when I bring it, all they have to do is receive it. Open-handed. I hold it out for them. They accept it. It's a very passive idea. They didn't pay for it. They're not worthy of it. I didn't give them a price tag. I didn't set up a payment plan. Hey, kids, here's your payment plan. If you pay me back 50 cents a month. No, 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 no. It's free. It's undeserved. It's totally abundant. Do you know Jesus? In your day-to-day -day life and personally, you don't have to wait until you're good enough to enjoy what you've got in salvation. That relationship is there to be received. Come through the door right now. Final verse, fourth point. The overflow of grace, living a new life like Jesus' life. Why does a carpenter make what he does? The chair, the table, it's there, it's functional. It's got a purpose to be used. Why does the artist paint or sculpt to a so people can admire and enjoy what they've made. Why does God give liberally with no charge? The gift is God's. It's a free gift to bring his rebellious children back into the circle of his family. Why does he do grace? Why does he give us life in Jesus, the purpose? It's not just to give us tickets to heaven. He's doing something right now that starts a process of transforming us into the image of Jesus, that you and I would become reflections of him, his love, his actions in our lives and relationships down here on earth right now. Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork. The word could be rendered masterpiece. God made us. It's like God, God created, 
not a sculpture. That's lifeless. We're living beings. He made you. He made me. He's got a stake in our origins. And he created us in Christ Jesus for a purpose. What's that? To do good works. Remember, we just pushed the works overboard in the verses before and said they won't save us. But here's where they fit. They're a response of love, a response of gratitude to God's incredible, sweeping grace that draws us into his family. If you've truly been gripped by the miracle of God's grace, it prompts action. He crafted us to be in union with Jesus for the purpose of doing good works. If you bump into me, you really should start to get a feel for what Jesus is like. That's what all of us should be. Here's where works fit. And there are works he planned in advance for us to do. He had this mapped out long before you and I were ever alive. John Calvin, the reformer, made the statement that it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. And I think that's a beautiful description of what you've just seen in this passage. Faith alone justifies us, makes us right by God's decree based on the cross of Christ. But faith that justifies can never be alone. I don't just believe and not change. I don't just believe and not become more and more like Jesus as I go through life. So, where have we been? We've seen the passage unfold four steps. We started with the need for grace. Then we saw the demonstration of grace in what God did, how we appropriate it, and that there's nothing we can do to appropriate it because that's really the razor-sharp point of this passage. It's by grace you've been saved through faith. And then there's an overflow. It changes us. It expresses itself in relationships here on earth, in internal attitudes and thoughts in my life. Think for a few moments, just a few biblical pictures to have before you as we come to prayer at the end. Remember the prodigal? The father welcomed back the prodigal who rebelled. What grounds did the prodigal have to be accepted back? None. He had insulted his father and rejected everything in that culture about a father-son relationship and the father welcomes him home. How about the cross? Remember Jesus praying on the cross? Forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Had they asked for forgiveness? Were they deserving and worthy? In no way. Or think about the thief on the cross. It's too late. He is nailed up there. There is nothing he can do. And he comes to faith. It's too late for deeds. And Jesus says, I'll see you in heaven today. We say there's no free lunch. Sounds good in American, doesn't it? We want to work for what we're going to get. But with God, all the meals are free. God gives free lunches all the time, if you will. It is the diametric opposite, and he shows it off according to this passage. Now, showing off 
Sounds obnoxious at first, except think about this. If somebody comes to church with a newborn baby and they show the baby off, or you think, ah, oh, it's so obnoxious. Why don't they show why are they showing us their baby? No, no, no. You got this is wonderful. The baby's so beautiful. The baby's so cute. That's not obnoxious. You're a parent, you're a grandparent. Of course you're gonna show off the baby. What are you showing off? New life. What's God showing off? New life. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you that salvation is available for us sinners. Thank you that it is a free gift that we didn't deserve. That in your mercy, you give us something we could never earn. And that we can lay hold of it by faith. Flying in the face of every other religion, every human expectation and relationship, thank you that you embrace us and welcome us into your family. Salvation. That you give this to those who don't deserve or earn. Thank you for grace. The rebels, each of us, may we learn whether it is for the first time today or whether it is an ongoing necessity to give up on ourselves and truly throw ourselves on Christ, confident in your work, Lord Jesus, on the cross. Create and strengthen our faith. In the name of Jesus, amen.